This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to him in prayer and ask his guidance today. Father, we thank you for your word, that as the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, which means it and it alone gives us that illumination that we need in order to make wise decisions, in order to discern the real issues that we face in life, and in order to uh, comprehend how we should chart out our path. As we study Proverbs, we realize that we constantly are faced with a choice. Do we take the path that you have laid down toward wisdom based on the knowledge and understanding of your word, or do we take the path that seems right to us, that appears pleasant, that seems to be the one that is uh, most attractive and the one that offers the most? And Father, we pray that we might have the wisdom to know that that the path that we should follow is that one that, that is charted for us through your word, and that we therefore need to make that the priority, that it is never too late to acquire wisdom unless we are suddenly, as we studied last time, thrust into the crisis, and then it is too late to acquire the wisdom that we need for that crisis. But your grace is always sufficient for us, and your grace will always supply us with opportunity so that no matter what happens, no matter how we may have failed in the past, there's always opportunity to choose to go forward. There's opportunity to uh, confess our sins, to be restored to fellowship, and to move forward. And Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might be challenged with the fact that each of us needs to ramp up our own uh, focus, commitment, priority on your word, that we might be faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Confidence is one of those interesting words we often hear. Sometimes it follows the hyphenated compound of self-confidence. Self-confidence sometimes just means that we have a, a sense of who we are, that we have mastered whatever our uh, area of endeavor is, and so we're confident that we can accomplish task. And that, as far as it goes, is probably not uh, a negative concept. But confidence ultimately has to be based in our life on one of two things. It's either based on the Creator, on God, or it's based on 
the circumstances, the details of the creation. Those are the only options. We either ultimately ground our stability, our confidence, our certainty, our future hope and expectation upon God and God alone, which doesn't just mean trust him, but it emphasizes something more specific. It's trusting in what he has revealed in his word. Too often we simply say just trust him. We may mean more than that, but that sort of becomes a bit of a cliché. Confidence is the stress of the passage we'll study today. We'll just get through the first six verses of this particular section in Proverbs, and so we're going to see the key to confident living. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago when I began to use this introductory slide, Proverbs is about choices. Proverbs is about our choice, whether we're going to follow the path that leads to life or the path that leads to death. I think a theme verse for Proverbs is that there is a way that seems right to man, but its end thereof is death. And so we have this choice, and often uh, we don't know which way to go. And what the father is saying to his son in the framework of the book of Proverbs is teaching him how to acquire the wisdom to make skillful decisions as we go through life in the midst of crisis, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of stress, we can, we've, we've laid down a foundation in our soul that is, that is based upon God's word and it has built a, a strength. It's built a, a framework of stability so that it sets a, a course for our thinking. And that takes time. It doesn't happen in, in a week. It doesn't happen in a month, it doesn't happen in even a year or two. It comes as a result of, uh, uh, of being completely enmeshed in the Word of God so that the thinking of Scripture becomes our thinking. And that, only t- that takes time. And we have to make decisions, not just once. It's not just this one-shot decision that I'm going to commit myself to the study of the Word, but every single day that we're going to make that a priority. And then over the course of time, we see that strength uh, develop. As we have seen in our uh, introduction in, this first, in these first nine chapters of Proverbs, the, there are ten lessons on wisdom given by the father to the son. And the, though originally this was, these, were, these Proverbs were written down as a as a result of the teaching of the father to the son, it, it had as its, as its teaching point to the people of Israel a framework, a model for how parents and fathers specifically should train their children so that following the dictates of Deuteronomy, the focus upon the word and the wisdom and the doctrine of the Old Testament would be passed on from one generation to the next. The application for us is that we are to do the same thing. And so the only way we get to that that point in our spiritual growth where we move from just the information of Scripture, and it's amazing how many people don't even have the basics of information today. And some of this may be true for some of you. If you remember a few years ago when Jim Myers was back, he was asking different questions, just basic factual questions about uh, about the Bible. 
about different people in the Bible and how as he, he had a little test and as he had gone around uh, tra- travels in churches had passed out the test and how many people who had sat in good doctrinal teaching churches for many years couldn't even pass the test. And every now and then I am, something happens, I hear of something that, that sort of impresses me about how uh, we, we just have such a dumbed-down uh, evangelical community today. And when I was in D.C. this last week, a friend of mine drove down from, uh, uh, who ha- I've known since we were in college together, and he's now retired out of the military, extremely bright guy, raised Southern Baptist, now because of marriage goes to another church, but he's fairly interested in spiritual things, not heavily so, because the bar's been set so low in churches over the last 40 years that most people think they're, they're, they're doing the pole vault when, when all they're doing is jumping over grains of sand. And um, uh, he lives up in the same area, same town, in fact, as Charlie Clough. And so I arranged for them to meet and to drive down together uh, for the service on Friday, and they had a good discussion about different things. Uh, they both worked out at Aberdeen Proving Ground, and so they had a lot of certain things in common there. And on the way back, they were talking about spiritual things, and Charlie um, talked to me later, emailed me. Uh, he was glad that I put them together. And he said, but but it was interesting. They were talking about something, and uh, this friend of mine did not realize that David wrote most of the Psalms. Now, to me, that's just such foundational, base, basic information. And yet, we realize that here's somebody who's been in church his whole life, and, and in churches that, that, that pretend, I don't know of a better word, I'm not knocking them, but there are so many churches that, that pretend and say they're teaching the Word, and yet, here's somebody in his 60s, who doesn't know that David wrote most of the Psalms. Now, you go back two generations, three generations in this country, that was common knowledge. That's how ignorant we've become of basic facts. And and if we're going to ever get to the point as Christians that we have wisdom, we've got to control basic information. Information isn't knowledge, but information is the the, the framework for knowledge. You have to know facts and details. And then knowledge then, as we uh, accumulate knowledge in our soul, that gives us the information we need and and, and the understanding we need to apply, and that is how wisdom is built. And you can't get to wisdom without spending a lot of time in the Word, reading your Bible once a year is a minimal expectation. I know some of you think, oh, I don't know if I could do that. You're just going to never get out of nursery school. You just want to sit around in diapers as a Christian, I guess. But reading your Bible once a year is a minimal expectation. That's just not that difficult. Memorizing 15 or 20 promises it's just not that difficult. But some people today just think, oh, how could I ever do that? That's why I recite the same basic bank of Bible verses before different Bible classes. I figure if somebody listens to me for three or four years, just by osmosis, they're going to memorize 15 or 20 Bible verses. 
and not even realize it at the time. But that's what we have to do. That's the challenge. That is what we see here in, in the book of Proverbs. So in these first lessons, we saw the first lesson in the first chapter, the challenge to listen to the Father's guidance and to reject the influence of the son's peers. And that is so true today. It's not just something for young people. It's something for older people as well. We have so much chatter around us from the cosmic system that is constantly penetrating through our defenses that we don't even realize how much worldly or cosmic thinking we've absorbed, how much human viewpoint foolishness has become a major part of the way we look at life. And so we have to be challenged to listen to the teaching of Scripture. Then from verses 20 to 33 in the first chapter, there was a a comment made as wisdom was personified, and wisdom uh, rebuked the simple, the naive, and the open-minded. The second uh, lesson started in chapter 2, verses 1 through 22, dealing with the uh, uh, need of wisdom to protect us from the wicked. And now we're in the third uh, section, which focuses on the promise of the Lord, his promise to guide and direct us, but we have a responsibility to guard the word, to uh, obey the word, and to have our confidence in God alone. And that is what we see in our first six verses. The, the These verses are set in uh, in, in collections where you really have uh, uh, quattro stitches, which are four lines, or in one case you have a pentastitch, which is in uh, verses like three and four, you have five lines, and each one is a different proverb. They're not verse, one verse, two, but they're usually two verses. Sometimes you will find three verses that are connected together. And so the first two verses go together. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. What we see here in the beginning of this, of this section is the first verse is a challenge to the son to obedience. The father is anchoring his teachings even more strongly and orienting them to the word and the command from the Lord. This is seen in several verses as we go through this particular uh, chapter. And so he's challenging uh, the son to follow his law and his commands because they are the Lord's law and commands, not because they are just the father's opinions or his ideas, but because these come uh, come from the law from the Lord. He is. Commanded in the in the first verse, we have a what's called an antithetical parallelism. You remember, I uh, we we learned as we studied this that that in poetry, in Hebrew poetry, there is a uh, uh, there there is the rhyming of ideas, not words, and it's done different ways. Sometimes you have a synonymous parallelism where the first line is restated with uh, similar words to give a better explanation or understanding. Sometimes there's an antithetical or opposite nature to the two lines so that the second line expands on the first line but by stating it in the in the negative. 
And that's what we have here in the first verse. The positive command is to not forget my law. And in contrast, we're to let our heart keep our commands. So we see a parallel between the idea of do not forget and keeping. So we understand that not forgetting the law doesn't mean that we just don't have a lapse of memory, but it really means to keep or obey or even guard the law. These two words are important to understand as we look at this uh, section. The word for do not forget is the uh, Hebrew word shekah, which can mean has the idea of not forgetting, not having a lapse of memory, or ignoring something. It has in many passages where it's spiritual passages related to the Word of God or to God, it has the idea of don't abandon or deny God. It's not simply talking about a, a, a memory failure. It's talking about don't abandon, don't deny, don't uh, go against uh, the law. The law is the Hebrew word Torah here, uh, which has the idea of the instruction of the law, uh, of the commands of God, going back to the Mosaic law. Uh, the Hebrew word for law is Torah, but it also has the idea of instruction or guidance uh, for living. So the son is commanded, don't deny the law, don't abandon the law. The principle for us is that we are not to abandon or deny or ignore the word of God. It is to be the highest priority in our life. It is, if it is not, it is easy for us to go against uh, the word. So the, the first command is to not forget, not abandon the law. And then the second line says, but let your heart keep my commands. And that is the Hebrew word uh, natsar, which means to watch watch, to watch over, to keep, or to guard something. So it is the idea of not forgetting the law is the negative of not abandoning it, but what we are to do is to guard it, to keep it, to make sure that it is enshrined within our soul and within our thinking, and that it is the foremost um, content in our, in our thinking. So this is the foundation. And then the second verse, second verse is going to give us the explanation of why this is important. But before we go there, I want to look at a couple of other verses that support this idea in Scripture, this idea of keeping and obeying the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, we have the command, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, guard yourself, watch yourself lest you what? Forget. See how we often have these two words used together, lest you forget or abandon the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So within the content of the Mosaic law, there's to be this family responsibility of teaching the law and passing it down from generation to generation. It is the parents' job and the grandparents' job to teach and to train and equip the children in the Word of God. It is not something that is to be delegated to the schools or the Sunday schools. It is to be the, the 
place of training in the Word of God in a biblical context is within the family. And so these other things, Sunday school, prep school, are simply uh, adjuncts. But the primary place where the teaching of the Word should take place uh, for, for the children is within the family. Deuteronomy 6.12 says, Beware. We have these warnings again and again not to forget or abandon the Lord, lest you forget or abandon the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, one of the ways that they were not to do that is because they would continuously be reminded through the rituals and of the temple, rituals laid out in the, in the uh, Levitical offerings that constantly brought their mind back to what God had done in the Exodus event. We had the same kind of thing in the Lord's table. We are to remember the Lord in his, uh, in his death, who he is and what he did for us. Deuteronomy 8.14, when your heart is lifted up, that is when you become arrogant, when you within your soul lift yourself up as being arrogant is the idea, and you forget, that is when you become arrogant and you abandon, deny, or uh, by the way you're living, you reject the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Constantly remember what God did. You see in these, these examples, Deuteronomy 4.9 refers to forgetting the things your eyes have seen. That's the Exodus event. Deuteronomy 6.12 refers to the Exodus event. Deuteronomy 8.14 refers to the Exodus event. These are all referring to something where God entered into human history and did something profound in delivering uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The point is that this is a historical event in space-time history when God interfered with human history miraculously to deliver Israel. Christianity is not based on feeling. It's not based on some kind of mystical idea about God. It's not based on these anything like any other world religion. It is based on a God who has entered into uh, space-time history, into the history of the human race, and has acted in the history of the human race. Deuteronomy 32.18 is another passage in Deuteronomy that relates to the same thing. The rock who begot you, this is a reference back to, again, an event that occurred uh, with the Exodus and the uh, wilderness wanderings. The rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. In the Psalms, we see the same uh, the same exhortation, the same challenge. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Write them down. When you pray, remember the different ways. Itemize in your mind the ways God has blessed you. Psalm 106, 13. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. This is a, a, a rebuke of the Exodus generation. Uh, Psalm 106.21 does the same thing. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Now, the promise is that if we keep the law, if we do not abandon God, and if we guard and keep his commandments, which means to observe them regularly in our life, then they have a result. Length of days and long life and peace They will add to you. Now, literally in the Hebrew, this reads, for length of days, it's not long life, 
It's length of days and long years. Length of days and long years and peace. The length of time involves the quantity of life, and the peace relates to the quality of life and emphasizes that not only will we have a longer life, this was also contained in the commandment related to honoring your father and your mother, and you will live long. And this is the same idea that's that's related here. Uh, so we have this promise of uh, adding the you know, obedience that the, there will be an increase of life and also increase of the quality of life. Uh, the word shalom, which is what is translated as peace here, doesn't simply mean just peace. It doesn't mean just the absence of conflict, but it also is a, re- relates to a comprehensive kind of fulfillment or completion, one writer says, indeed a perfection in life and spirit which quite transcends any success which man alone, even under the best circumstances, is able to attain. It relates to a fullness of life. It qualifies in, our, in, in one's life every sufficiency and good fortune, free from hostility and lack, and so filled with inner contentment, delight, and joy and pleasure as a gift of God. That's what peace is. It is an extremely pregnant sense here. It is a life of happiness, joy, contentment, no matter what uh, the circumstances uh, might be. This idea that that if we're obedient to the word that it extends our life is also present later in this chapter in Proverbs. In verse 16 and 17 we read, uh, Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Referring to wisdom, Proverbs 3.17, Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. So we see this idea repeated again in the next section of this a particular verse. Now, having begun with an emphasis on knowing and keeping and guarding the word in our life, then we receive another exhortation in verses 3 and 4 to take what we have learned in terms of applying it in relation to mercy and truth, and that again, reflecting an idea that we saw earlier this is to be bound around our neck like a necklace. This is, buys into an imagery of wearing uh, a, a necklace with a symbol of protection. So it's the idea that mercy and truth protect us. So again, we see uh, a command in the first line, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So in the first line, we have the command The next two lines expand on that, and they're in synonymous uh, parallelism. Binding them is parallel to writing them. Around your neck is uh, a symbol of your your, your important area of our anatomy. Uh, The neck holds up the head. This symbolizes protection. And writing that on the tablet of the heart, making this a part of the thinking of our soul. And in verse 4, the result, and so, so find favor, and high esteem in the light, uh, in the sight of God and man. This idea is also repeated several times in the Psalms. It's parallel with the commands in Proverbs 6, 20, and 21. 
My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart and tie them around your neck. So we see this same imagery repeated many times through the Psalms, through the Proverbs, Proverbs 7, 2, and 3. Keep my commands and live. And my law as the apple of your eye, that's in the center of your eye, uh, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Again and again, you need to learn the word. It needs to become so much a part of you that you can't live without thinking about what does God want me to do? How does the word of God apply to this decision and this situation? The two phrase, the, the two words used here, uh, translated in the New King James as mercy and truth are extremely significant words uh, used in in the uh, Scripture. They are virtues that reflect the content of the Father's teaching. The first word translated mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is a word that relates to God's faithful, loyal love. So in human beings, chesed is... Uh, related to faithfulness and loyalty as a result of our understanding of God's word. Uh, Truth, emmet here, is a word that has the idea of of stability. A form of this word is used to refer to the foundation stones placed under the pillars in Solomon's temple to give them stability. And so from that root idea of firmness or stability comes the idea of something totally dependable, something unchangeable, something unshakable, and therefore something that is absolutely faithful. So this is the idea here, let not, and so truth, often those words are used together, the um, faithfulness of God and his integrity or truth are very close ideas tied to one another by just different forms of this same uh, same word. And mercy and truth are words that are uh, emphasized throughout the Proverbs. It is, uh, and in this particular structure, using uh, mercy and truth together, they emphasize what is essential to have to to have a life of wisdom and to live a life of skill. Uh, Proverbs twenty three twenty three says, "Buy the truth." and do not sell it. This emphasizes the priority of truth. Now, we live in an era when people don't believe in truth anymore as an uppercase, capital T, universal principle that applies to everybody in every situation, in every culture in the world. Truth is whatever you find that works for you. That's what our culture says. But as Christians, as Bible believers, we reject that. There's only one truth, and it needs to be the priority. We need to buy it and not sell it. There, there, there are certain uh, sort of rules that wealthy people follow. One is never sell real estate. There are certain rules that Texans never always follow, and that is if you have a firearm, never sell it. <laughs> Some things are necessary in life, and you never, ever get rid of them. That's the foundation for your future. So that is the idea here. Buy the truth, never sell it. Also, that is along with truth, buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. Proverbs 29.14 also emphasizes truth in relation to leadership. In this case, it's 
government leadership, but it applies to leadership in any realm, whether parental leadership in the home, whether it is leadership in your job, whether it's leadership in the military, as a teacher, whatever it is. It relates to this verse. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. So truth becomes the foundation for being able to make judgments in life to help people solve problems and face issues in their life. Isaiah uh, 48, 1, echoes this idea. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. Jacob was the given name of uh, the son of Isaac, one of his twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and God gave him the name Israel. Oh, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. See, this is a, this is a condemnation of the uh, generation at, at Isaiah's time and that which would come that had rejected the Lord that they just have talk. They have God talk. This relates to a lot of things that go on in our culture today. There are a lot of people who just have a superficial God talk. And they, and you even hear, you even hear politicians who use Christianity or God talk in order to try to put a, a, some sort of respectable facade on their evil ideas. If you noticed uh, last week, <coughs> you paid attention to it, when uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California came out and with her uh, horrible uh, anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment uh, uh, legislation, when she introduced it, I just love this, when she introduced it, she had no idea what she's doing. When she introduced it, she wanted to cloak it in the facade of of religion and respectability. So she got the uh, uh, canon from the uh, National uh, Church in Washington, D.C. to open in prayer and give the opening remarks about uh, this piece of legislation and why it was so important that we should enact this piece of legislation that would basically... Uh, remove about 80% of firearms from the possession of American citizens in violation of the Second Amendment, wrapping it all up, cloaking it in in the guise of religion and respectability, and just hogwash. But she she made a point there, and and that I make all the time, and that is everything in life, no matter what it is, it always goes back to your view of God and your view of the Bible and your view of revelation. Everything does. And so uh, when I take some time in the next week or two, finally finish putting together a special on the um, what's going on with the Second Amendment, uh, this just gave me every platform I could ever desire because she made it a religious issue by the way she set it up. I'm very grateful to her for that. It may be the only thing I'm grateful to her for. But this is what happens. People who reject God want to wrap up what they're doing in the cloak, in the veneer of biblical truth, but yet they deny it. We often see these words linked together in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 14.22 we read, 
But they do not, uh, do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. See, these two elements, chesed and emet, go together. Proverbs 16.6, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. Mercy and truth, God's grace and his faithful stability, his truth, his integrity go together. That's part of the integrity of God, both his grace and his faithfulness and his veracity. Atonement is, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Proverbs 20, 28 says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds the throne. The opposite is true. If the king does not have, the ruler does not understand mercy and truth, then his government becomes a government of rot and is antagonistic to freedom. So by joining these two concepts together, mercy and truth, the writer, the uh, one, the father is linking these things together as a part of the necklace that uh, that provides protection and guidance for the person who applies the word. Then we come to the next pair of verses, two verses that are familiar to most of us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. The first verse gives us the positive commands of what we should do. We are to, first of all, trust in the Lord. This is expanded for us, and it is illuminated for us by the synonymous parallel in the next line, Trust means not to lean on or depend upon or to rely on our own understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't think. But what it means is we don't operate on human viewpoint understanding, on the limited uh, information that comes from the, uh, the, the, the basic, uh, uh, basic systems of rationalism and empiricism. We have to rely ultimately on the revelation uh, the revelation of God. Now, this verse is located within the context to show how the son is to bind the teaching of his father around his neck to guard and protect him. This is done through trust. Now, the word that is translated trust here in this passage is the Hebrew word batach, now, batach has a very simple meaning, and that is confidence. It emphasizes what one relies on for something. It is uh, that which provides you with your security. What is your ultimate source of confidence and security? It is what we often refer to here as the faith rest drill. When we put our confidence in God, then we are able to relax in life situations, whatever they may be. But it's sad to say that we are as guilty as many in our culture, that we have reduced the phrase, trust the Lord, to something that isn't much more than just a superficial cliché. 
The Bible doesn't use it in and of itself. We trust the Lord in terms of some sort of revelation, some sort of content. We are trusting a promise. We are trusting a provision. We're trusting in a a revelation from God within the Scriptures. We're not just uh, mindlessly just trusting the Lord in and of itself as an independent concept. It is trusting the Lord in terms of a promise, in terms of a verse, in terms of something he has revealed, in terms of a specific uh, principle that he has given us. But often what we hear is people using this as sort of a nonspecific generic motto that has reduced it to something that isn't anything more than something banal and uh, platitudinous. We, it means something significant in Scripture. There is a specific statement that our trust wraps itself around. We are combining our belief, our confidence, with a specific statement that the Scripture says. So the idea of trusting the Lord must be uh, clearly defined. Contextually, in this part of uh, Proverbs, this goes back to the idea in Proverbs 2, verse 6, that it is the Lord who gives wisdom. It is from his mouth that we receive knowledge and understanding. It ultimately doesn't come from our reason, autonomous or independent reason. It doesn't come from our experience. Those can provide limited information, but ultimately it's the revelation of God that gives us what we need in order to truly understand and discern the issues of life and have confidence in life. That is what trust is. It is a sense of confidence that means that we're just not worried or concerned about things anymore. We're confident that God is in control. doesn't mean we're irresponsible, but it means that we can relax because ultimately God is taking care of things. I'm going to do what I can do to the best of my ability, but God is the one who takes care of all of the details and the consequences and the results. Batak emphasizes this idea also of a sense of well-being that someone is in control who can control things, and because of that, we can have our confidence in him. It's not really the idea of faith that we see in, for example, in the New Testament. It's more this idea of confidence or certainty. It's interesting that in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made uh, two to three hundred years before Christ, uh, that they, by uh, Jewish rabbis in Alexandria, Egypt, who, because the Jewish community had lost its facility in Hebrew, needed a, a translation of the Old Testament in a, the language that they spoke, so they translated it into Greek. And in the Septuagint, the word batach is never translated with the word, uh, with the pistis word group, uh, which means to believe, but it's translated with the elpis word group, which means to hope in something, to have confidence in something. So that expresses the main idea of batach, to rely upon God, to depend upon him, to have our uh, confidence in him. It emphasizes such a strong sense of confidence that we're just not concerned about the problem anymore. We're, we're not going to lose sleep over it anymore. 
because God takes care of it. We're confident. We can just relax in him. Uh, Too often we're spending our time worrying, thinking, fretting about things we have no control over whatsoever. And when we do that, what we're basically saying is that this circumstance, that person, this event is going to control my life and make me miserable. Rather than saying, I'm going to cast my care upon the Lord because he cares for me, we're going to say, I'm going to hold on to this, and I'm going to worry and fret about it. I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to destroy my health because I'm not confident in God. I'm more confident that my ability to worry is going to control things than God's omnipotence is able to control things. Negatively, the concept of batak means that we're no longer putting the confidence in ourself, in our circumstances, in material things, in false gods, in money or the things that money can buy, or in politicians, or plans, or programs, or any other human thing. Our confidence is in the Lord, and therefore we're not going to be shaken by, by circumstances. There are several passages in the Proverbs that reiterate this. For example, Proverbs 16.20, He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts, that is, whoever is confident in the Lord, Happy is he. So look at the parallel between the first line and the second line in Proverbs 16.20. Having confidence in the Lord is parallel to heeding the word. Paying attention to God's word means to have confidence and be dependent upon the Lord. The result is we're happy. Proverbs 22.19, so that your trust, so that your confidence may be in the Lord, I have instructed you today. So the second line expands on the first. It doesn't repeat it or it's not antithetical to it. It just expands on it. But the reason we're instructed in the word is so that we can be confident in God. Proverbs 28:25 says, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts, that is, the one who is confident in the Lord, will be prospered. Notice the contrast between being arrogant or self-assertive and dependent Versus dependent or confident in God. Proverbs 29.25, the fear of man brings a snare. We're worried about people. We're worried about events and things and circumstances, and that creates a trap in our soul. But whoever is confident in the Lord shall be safe. Not because you did all the things you should do to be safe and secure, not that you shouldn't do them, but we can't ever lock every door and lock every window of our life. There are evil people and bad things that happen that are beyond our control. We can do so much, but ultimately we have to just let the Lord be the one in control who gives us our security. And even when the Lord is in control, the Lord sometimes allows bad things to happen in order to give us opportunities to grow, to trust him, to be a witness to others, and to apply the word so we can just relax and be confident in him. Jeremiah 7 has several key verses uh, related to things we shouldn't trust in. Do not trust in these lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. These are people who are trusting in the superficialities of religious uh, observance and religious ritual. And this is what was going on in Israel or uh, Judah at this time. Jeremiah 7, 8, Behold your trust in lying words that cannot profit. We have a lot of people in this country who have put their trust in the lying words of 
religions and politicians. And it's, they're just building a house of cards that will easily fall down when adversity comes. Jeremiah 7.14, God says, Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust. See, their confidence was in the temple, in the superficial worship. And so God condemned them. Uh, I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust into this place which I give to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh, which means he would destroy it. Isaiah 12.2 tells us positively, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Being confident in God means fear, anxiety, worry are out the door. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. Isaiah 26.4, Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Jeremiah 17.7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and in whose, and whose hope is the Lord. Psalm 37.4-6, Great promise to memorize. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness in the light as the light and your light as the noonday sun. Proverbs 56.3, Wherever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? Psalm 91.2, another promise. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will have confidence. Is your confidence in things people, events, or in God. Things not to trust in. It's great to have a strong military, but that's not our confidence. Israel had strong military, got defeated. Other nations had strong militaries, as the Assyrians did, and God uh, wiped them out, as he did at the time of, uh, of Hezekiah. Why? Because Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God, we're told in 2 Kings 18.5, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. He was the greatest, most spiritually mature, trusting king. That would include David as well. But Psalm 44, 6, For I will not trust in my bow, David said, nor shall my sword save me. Now I hear somebody say, yeah, but he trusted in his sling. No, he trusted in God. The battle is the Lord's. Psalm 118, 8, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. I don't care who the politician is. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 62, 10. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. Psalm 52, 7 and 8. Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, I trust in the mercy of God uh, forever and ever. As we go through these promises, I'll just give you some of the verses. Uh, Isaiah 31, uh, 31.1, uh, Woe to those who look to Egypt for help. Jeremiah 17.5, this is a great promise. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes God uh, and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. We can't trust in men. But one verse I found that is a great verse, one to, un, uh, that we need to understand, 
Ezekiel 33.12. See, often we trust in our own goodness and our own righteousness, especially people do that for salvation. But in the Old Testament, God says in Ezekiel 33.12, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. See, first of all, he says that no matter how righteous the righteous man is, his righteousness is not going to deliver him in the day of his transgression. His righteousness is not going to be able to save him. As far as the wicked go, he shall not fall because of his wickedness in the day that he turns from his wickedness. In other words, again, no matter how wicked you are, that's not going to be the issue at the last judgment. Finally, nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness. The point that he is making in these verses is that our human righteousness or our wickedness is not the issue because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Scripture says that the only hope that we have is the righteousness of Christ. And Scripture says that Jesus paid for our sins so that that he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God would be found in us. The only way to have the kind of righteousness that God wants is to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And at that instant, we're given the righteousness of God. And so we're saved not on the basis of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study through this psalm, to realize how important it is for us to know your word, not just to have your Bible on a shelf, not just to take notes, not just to be part of the right church with the right beliefs, but that we have to internalize all of this. It needs to be inculcated in a way that it is part of our thinking, part of our life. It becomes second nature to us. And, Father, we pray that we might be strengthened to make this our priority, to rearrange our life so that we can take in the Word and think as you would have us to think. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is unsure or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make sure, make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins that you might have eternal life. But the issue is now yours. Are you going to believe and trust in Jesus? Are you going to put your confidence in what he did in the cross or is your confidence in your own works? And as we have seen in our passage in Ezekiel 33, that our righteousness is not enough. Our wickedness does not keep us from salvation. The issue is, do we have the righteousness of Christ? And the only way to receive that as a free gift is through believing that Jesus died on the cross for you, trusting in him and him alone for salvation. Something you can do right now, right where you sit, just simply believing that Jesus died for you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.